This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Vanity Fair. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Kara Warner. Hello. Uh, we are going to dive back into our mailbag from you guys, our listeners, both because you have great questions and there's some stuff that we just want to talk about in what is still a little bit of a pause. Um, and we'll give kind of a preview of how this pause will end. By the time you hear us next week, there will be a lot going on all over again. Um, but first, we want to announce that for the first time ever, we are going to be running an Oscar pool for you, our beloved Little Gold Men listeners. This is brand new. Hopefully there's not a lot of kinks to work out that you'll be able to see, but we're really kind of launching it as we speak. Um, you'll be able to make your own Oscar pool. You'll be able to compete with other listeners and us. There will be a live leaderboard on Oscar night. There's different points values for different categories. So, you know, the right guess in the right place could really launch you right to the top. Uh, there will be a prize for the winner. No cash value, but something that if you're a listener of this podcast, you will hopefully treasure forever. Um, it's going to be first come, first served. And the way to sign up is to email us, littlegoldmen at vf.com. You know that email very well. Please put Oscar Pool in the subject line. And you might not hear from us for a little while. We're still working out how many people we'll be able to include. But um, go ahead and get in touch when you hear this so that you can participate. It's free to participate. Um, we'll all be doing it. We'll have our Oscar Pools. So email us, littlegoldmen at vf.com. And um, hopefully we'll see you on our Oscar night leaderboard. So now as we look into the future a little bit, David and Kara, you guys are going to be back on the circuit. I mean, I'm right that L.A. has just been like on the quieter side. You've got a couple people doing panels. Obviously, people are catching up on movies. But um, the real action starts again this weekend on Saturday at the DGA Awards, right? Correct. Yeah. Everyone's slowly ramping back up. But um, it's it's also just always very different from phase one. The rush to get nominated is far more aggressive <laughs> than <laughs> to win when it's usually between one to two contenders. 
Yeah. Um, Carrie, you'll be at the DGA Awards for us. But, David, you've done all the, the coverage in the past. And it does it's not televised. It's one of those events where everyone gets to talk a long time. I think at DGA, they get to talk a really long time because every <laughs> director kind of gets gets an award before the actual award. Um, but, you know, what, David, having been there in the past, what are you expecting um, the takeaways from this year's DGAs to be? The DGAs are are often a kind of filmmaker coronation event. I find it one of the most enjoyable, very long evenings of the season because, as you said, Katie, every nominated director gets their moment and um, they get a really nice introduction, usually from someone in the movie. It can be a longtime collaborator. And this year, the coronation will almost certainly be for Christopher Nolan. He's been steamrolling the directing race this season. He is the story of this season in that director race. Um, and he is on his way to his first Oscar in that category. And um, I think that that will be cemented at the DGA Awards. I think that the big narrative will certainly be the presence and whatever uh, comments are made uh, by Greta Gerwig, who is yeah. nominated there for Barbie. Um, I don't know if you guys heard, but she actually wasn't nominated for the directing Oscar. Oh, Fascinating. Wow. I can't believe the internet hasn't talked about that. Yeah. So um, she might uh, uh, have to have a question or two uh, on the press line <laughs> to, to answer uh, in that regard. I'm sure she's not going to be thrilled to talk about it, but obviously Margot Robbie addressed uh, those omissions uh, at an event last week, and uh, it remains a talking point. So I expect it to. And Margot, she kind of um, went through it as like as you know quickly and as um, nicely as she could, right? Like you know we're too blessed to be stressed is more or less what she said. I don't think she said it in Instagram caption form, um, but I kind of feel like that's all there is to say for either of them, right? Yes. Uh, I do think that. And again, they are both nominated. They will be yes. at the Nominees Luncheon, which is uh, the other big event uh, within the next week. Um, because Margot Robbie's a producer on the film, Greta Gerwig's nominated for her screenplay. So, um, yeah, it remains to be seen just how much juice there is left to squeeze out of this. But I wouldn't underestimate the internet uh, to find new angles. Whew, indeed. Maybe they're too distracted by yelling about the Grammys at this point, but we'll <laughs> never count on that. Um, Kara, you'll be there for us in person. I mean, who are you interested to see how how they move through a room at this point now that they're actually, um, you know, we're in phase two? I, I'm really excited. I've never been in the room before for DGAs. I've only covered the press line. Um, so I'm just kind of excited to see how it works. And I, I've said this before, but I love award season friendships. And so I'm excited to see, you know, who, who the people are that are chummy actually in real life, excited to see each other. There's, you know, there's a ton of TV directors involved. Um, and I think that's interesting. I don't know if the bear Christor will dominate again there, but I'm just excited to see, you know, how everyone interacts. And I, I am prepared for the long speeches. I've heard it does. It's like a 7 p.m. to midnight situation. I've, I've heard. But, but, uh, You've heard you, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll, you know, I'll be I'll be a, a brand new. Uh, it'll be brand new to me. And pack your snacks. The um, the TV categories are interesting because the DGAs are, at this point, rather famously the only organization that has given Bill Hader his due behind the camera. So if the bear were to lose anywhere, uh, it would be here. Bill Hader was nominated for the last time for the Barry 
final season. Um, in terms of friendships, Kara, I think you'll appreciate my favorite DGA sighting moment was a few years ago, um, the Power of the Dog year. And I was at the table, I was sitting at a table and right in front of me, Jane Campion, who was, of course, go, yeah, that was her coronation moment, uh, was standing with Chloe Zhao and Catherine Bigelow, uh, the two Ugh. winners of the two female winners of the Best Director Oscar, really embracing and and so pre welcoming Campion into the club, and it was a really beautiful moment. Yeah, that's. Wow. All, I hope someone took a photo. Uh, I tweeted it out, and for me, that's significant <laughs> enough. Well, we all know that Twitter is forever, and nothing will ever put that in jeopardy. So, no. <laughs> including the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing ever changes over there. Um, and then we'll talk more, a lot more about this next week because it will have just happened when we record. But David, you'll be at the Oscar nominees luncheon next Monday. Um, that really is kind of um, the the starting gun for a lot of the actors and just everybody. You know, the amount of people you get to see mixing and mingling there is pretty astonishing. Um, so, yeah, you'll be there reading the room. And um, I don't know if you want to voice predictions or just say how cool an event it is. Predictions for who gets the loudest applause, because that's yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's that's what it is. Um, I think this year will be a little bit more varied. Last year, everything everywhere all at once was just the you know the buzz in the room. Everyone there got the biggest applause. Ki Kwan was the star of that room, along with Tom Cruise, who every room he walked into that season, the entire room shifted in his direction. Um, but this year feels a little bit different. Um, I think there's a there are a lot of really significant narratives. Obviously, Barbie and Oppenheimer being the kind of pillars. But um, the acting winners, you know, the holdovers has so much love. So yeah, I, I'm not really sure. I think there could be some. I don't want to say surprises, but like uh, some notably and maybe surprising uh, significant enthusiasm. I want to know if, like, you know, we were just talking about the the shorts, which we'll be watching in a few weeks. Like, what if Wes Anderson is there for his short and he gets the biggest applause? Like, what if we get some weird revelations in the categories we'd never expected? We exactly. love a surprise. Love a surprise. Yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. 
Well, David, you mentioned uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer as the pillars of the season, which I do think leads us a little bit into um, the listener question that I wanted to start off with, which is not actually about either of these films. Um, but it comes from Matt with the email subject line, Sydney Sweeney is more famous than Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio combined. Uh I, we could debate that. That might be part of this conversation. Um, but basically, Matt's point is that anyone but you, which stars Sidney Sweeney and Glenn Powell, um, has already surpassed the domestic box office of Killers of the Flower Moon. It will likely surpass its worldwide total in the next few weeks. Um, his question is basically, is the Killers of the Flower Moon box office um, a disaster to the point that um, Lily Gladstone could not overcome it to win Best Actress? Um, as Matt puts it very bluntly, I don't know that I would agree with this, it premiered in May 2023. It made no money, has basically no award wins, and um, has been missing in major categories, um, which I think is true. I think it's interesting about Killers of the Flower Moon in particular, and we can talk about this movie, but I wanted to talk about box office in general um, because Poor Things, which uh, Emma Stone is the star of, is competing against Lily Gladstone and Best Actress as we see it, um, is currently at the box office and just recently became the highest grossing specialty box office release of the year. It still hasn't made as much as Killers of the Flower Moon, to mm -hmm. be clear, um, but it does have that that status for it. Um, but let's start with Killers. We've talked about its box office a lot. I would call it like a pretty decent success. Um but it's no Barbie or Oppenheimer, so how much does that matter, do you guys think? Yeah, I think Matt's framing of complete box office disaster is a bit hyperbolic when you consider that this movie was ultimately made for streaming. It's an Apple movie. It's meant to live on Apple. Yes, they they gave it a theatrical release. It made back three quarters of its budget, which is like pretty good for a streaming movie compared to when Netflix theatrical releases things in you know much much smaller scale. Um, it did though those movies don't make that kind of money at the theater. So I, I, my guess would be at Apple, which is not hurting for cash anyway. Um, they're mostly happy with the result. Yeah. How many vision pros did it make at the box office? <laughs> right, right, those exactly. Numbers? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think the other thing about it is like Scorsese is not in his recent career, not really known as a box office guy, you know? Um, I think that the, his movies get esteem for different reasons that have, aren't really about financials. And then the question is, well, why, why does he keep getting these huge, huge budgets? And it's like, well, in the, in, the, in the last two cases, it's streamers trying to get him. You know, it's it's streamers trying to get the bragging rights, whether it's Netflix or Apple, that they have the new uh, Martin Scorsese film. Um, I don't think that Sidney Sweeney is more famous than Scorsese or DiCaprio. I think that Matt's probably being a little cheeky there. Um, <laughs> I don't know that it's a problem of box office for Flower Moon. I think it has more to do with, um, yes, it did premiere at Cannes in May, but then most people saw it months later. But I think that it just wasn't a juggernaut financially, but also in some ways culturally the way that Barbie and Oppenheimer were. I mean, they came out on the same day and that was the whole story. And uh, they've been kind of enjoying that convergence since, you know, and, and Flower Moon does not have that. And it's a lot more, um, I mean, Oppenheimer is very serious, but Flower Moon is very tragic in the immediate sense of the story. It's very long. It's longer than Oppenheimer. I, I think it just has a few more barriers to entry um, than do the other two. I was going to say that is the bummer factor impacting uh, box office because Killers is kind of a bummer. <laughs> um, not that Oppenheimer isn't, but when people hear that, you know, about what, what the story is. Um, I don't know if that deters people from, you know, wanting to see it right away. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to especially nominations, once they're nominated, it, it's just a matter of inter versus box office. Have the Academy members seen this movie? 
have they all seen it? I mean, and I think in the case of Killers, the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. Last year in this category, we, you know, I remember hearing from a lot of Academy members who did not see The Woman King. And then Viola Davis was very surprisingly not nominated. And um, we talked about that a lot. But, you know, that was a case where you had a hit, or at least, you know, for its budget, for its release. Um, and that didn't translate. Uh, so it's really more a matter of this particular voting body um, and whether they're being reached enough, whether they are seeking out the title enough, I think is maybe a better way of putting it. And I think in this race, you have five films that have been pretty well seen. You know, Nyad is the only one that is not nominated for Best Picture, which is pretty, you know, impressive for this category. It's unusual. Um, and that movie was, I think, pretty widely seen um, just because it was on Netflix. So in terms of Gladstone's chances along those lines, I, I don't think she would be impacted. Um, I think that the question as to, like, impact uh, to what Richard and Kara were talking about uh, is... Um, yeah, that's definitely relevant. Um, I just don't think that's that's something you see in the box office. I think that's something you can, you know, gauge online. You can gauge by talking to Academy members. And people love her performance in that movie. It's it's a very well-regarded, um, it's probably the most loved part of that movie. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I don't think that the film's performance hurts her necessarily. I think that whether or not there's enough enthusiasm for the movie to Kara's point, is the going to be the bigger question. I just want to clarify that to the tragedy aspect of Flower Moon versus Oppenheimer, obviously Oppenheimer is about a horrible tragedy. Um, we just don't see it on screen. Some critics of Oppenheimer did say, you know, when the movie was released, that like, it probably would have been a more well-rounded film and a more honest film had there been, I don't know, some Japanese characters who lived in Hiroshima or Nagasaki in the film. Um, and I think that that movie would have a very different profile if that were the case. Um, whereas Flower Moon really gets very up close to the tragedy, the genocide it's depicting. Um, and I think, unfortunately, that has alienated some people. But I think that it might have alienated people from the movie as the, as a whole, but it's drawn them closer to Lily Gladstone's performance, mm. you know, as representative of that tragedy. Um, so, yeah, I think there is a an, maybe it's an odd distinction to make, but but there is one in there. No, and that's uh, eloquently uh, described and um, added because I, you know, bummer is a little <laughs> broad. Uh, but yes, I, t- I mean, I totally agree with that. Well, then let's bring it to the other side of this equation, though, which is if we think that Best Actress is down to Lily Gladstone versus Emma Stone, which I think most of us do, um, Poor Things is ascendant right now. It's made $28 million at the box office. It's just got past Asteroid City as the highest grossing specialty release of 2023. I guess Iron Claw doesn't count as specialty because it went wide because it's still above both of them. But anyway, that's still pretty huge. It's still got more money to make. It's not available on streaming anywhere. Does the fact that Poor Things is ascendant at the box office help Emma Stone in this equation? Yeah, sure. It's also a little bit newer, you know, to to mm-hmm. to, to Matt's point about Fowler Moon being in something of the consciousness since last May. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I mean, I guess box office reflects people seeing it in, in, you know, in a sort of normal sense. But like the Academy can see anything that, you know, they, they do see everything, hopefully. Um, they have the best screener app in the world. And yeah. I'm jealous of it forever. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that 
Emma Stone is really, really great in that movie. And I think it might just be, you know, we were talking last week about Gladstone and, and, and some of her competitors and, you know, the, the sort of tone of performance or, you know, how big it is or how quiet it is. And both are really effective. Um, but maybe some voters will prefer the huge swing that Emma Stone takes versus the subtlety that Lily Gladstone employs. You know, um, I think that's just a matter of taste, you know, hopefully beyond any other bias. I also yeah. thought I'm still surprised at the kind of uh, love for poor things when I saw it. I just thought it might be way too weird and out there, despite the fact that it's a Yorgos You're not movie, the only right? one, for sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm still surprised just because, you know, the hypersexuality and, and you know, the, the consent elements um, that I still have an eyebrow raised at. But yeah, I'm, I'm still amazed. I think it's, I don't know, I, I'm a, I think it's love for Emma, right? Is that you know, she has such goodwill within her works thus far and, you know, people just like seeing her. Yeah. I think that she is the, yeah, she's the reason that movie has gone as far as it has. And there is like tremendous admiration for her performance in that movie. Um, and momentum is everything in the acting races, as we talk about every year, as we talked about with Michelle Yeoh, as we talked about with Jessica Chastain, it's, it's, it's something that's a little intangible, um, but that you just sort of feel. And right now, I would say that it is in that area. It is in the area of poor things in Emma Stone. That said, I said this last week, I, I feel like this race is quite unresolved. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't feel particularly confident in really predicting almost any of them for SAG, particularly. And I would say BAFTA is probably down to Emma Stone and Sandra Huller. Lily Gladstone is not nominated there, which, as I've talked about, I think um, signals some struggles she may have in this category, even though I think she can definitely win SAG, which would then um, put her in pole position again. So yeah, I, I remain fascinated by this category. I think that's why I keep getting questions about it. It feels maybe even a little bit more open-ended than it, it seems right now, um, which is pretty exciting between those two actresses. So I remain open to the next momentum shift. I hear a splashing sound. Do you guys hear that? Is someone, oh, someone's swimming up behind me. Oh my God, it's an epidemic. <laughs> hey, I mean, the amount of like tribute awards and sort of... Yeah. Stump speeches she's got lined up over the next month. Um, I would say Netflix is aware of a a feeling of unresolvedness in this category. And uh, Kara and I have both done events with her where uh, the reception is quite electric. Um, I would say that that is actually most true for her and Lily Gladstone, which is interesting. Mm. You know, when Lily Gladstone's in a room, there is, I think, just... Not all, but she has an incredible presence and she really carries a panel. She carries really herself as a contender with, um, in a way that I think people really admire and are drawn to. So those are also powerful factors. But as we were talking about it, it can be a little bit more difficult for that to make an impact in phase two. What a fascinating twist it would be if we all think that the actress in a Yorgos Lanthimos movie is going to win and then a veteran who has never won before swoops up and takes it from her. Like Olivia oh, Coleman would justice. be home cackling. <laughs> Glenn Close is just giving a silent nod <laughs> from her seat. 
Um, okay, so to move on away from actress, even though I'm sure we'll talk about best actress every week between now and the Oscars, we can't help ourselves. Um, we have a question from Dylan who says, perhaps this is a bit of a hot take, but in my view, Barbie is almost equally split between Barbie and Ken's respective emotional journeys. And Gosling certainly has numerous flashy set pieces. So is it category fraud for Ryan Gosling to be in supporting? Uh, is he in there because Barbie is a titular character and therefore the only one allowed to be considered lead? Uh, is it because admitting Gosling as a co-lead would undermine the narrative of that movie? Um, and then when does a central performance become so critical that every other performance is automatically considered supporting? Dylan has like a, a future blog potential with just the title category fraud. Because oh, yeah. Like what a great what a great subject. I mean, it's it gets people riled up so much. And I guess we, we really kind of stopped thinking about it. I feel like when Barbie came out, I remember Rebecca Ford seeing it and being like, Gosling is like in a lot of the movie. Because I think from the trailers, you didn't really know about Ken's whole heel turn. That was a surprise for when we all saw the movie. Um, but I do feel like pretty quickly we were like, well, it's supporting and that's it. Um, and I wonder if Dylan is right that we should examine that a little bit more. The breakdown, if I may uh, fact oh, check, courtesy, time. <laughs> of, courtesy of Matthew Stewart, who does this um, every year, and it's an invaluable resource. Um, Margot Robbie's in 50% of the movie, and Ryan Gosling's in 25% of the movie. Really? So Ooh. It's, 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 a, it's a question of impact, and this is, this is why Lily Gladstone is in. Lily Gladstone is about the same screen time percentage as Ryan Gosling, I believe, in Killers of the Flower Moon. She's a little bit higher, um, but not much. And I so I I do agree in theory that his impact on the movie and the story and him having his own storyline and these two storylines sort of converging, you could make an argument for him going into lead. It would be more difficult for him to be nominated in that case, let alone be competitive for a win. But it's a supporting performance. She's the lead of that movie in the same way that... Um, Leonardo DiCaprio is the lead, the main focus of Killers of the Flower Moon. Hmm. Um, that's my personal opinion about it. But I think that that reaction and that feeling, even just like hearing you guys' reaction to like, oh, wow, he's only in 25% of the movie is the the screen time he gets, the arc that Gerwig and Bombag write for him is very significant to what people remember and love about that movie. Um, and that's, I think, why he's gone as far as he has. I'm so confused how Margot Robbie is only in 50% of Barbie. Like, who's in the rest of the movie? It's She should be in, like, 80% of it. America, you have Ferreira. his stuff. You have Ferreira's stuff. I mean, I... I yeah. I, the Farrell stuff. The Farrell stuff. I guess so. Yeah, that's surprising. I think probably for Warner Brothers and, like, the cast also, that was a political thing, right? You know, mm -hmm. in that the story of Barbie was never going to be... Uh, let's put Ken front and center, despite how great uh, Ryan is. I'm I'm sure that was sort of decided from the jump. Yeah, um, sort of no like the, the inverse of like a maestro or a Killers of the Flower Moon, where it is important to those films' campaigns mm. that those actresses are centered. Yeah, the supporting verse lead is not an exact science <laughs> by any means, and <laughs> right. I know it's That's really what we're saying. it's often vexing, and I think that like even you know people like us like. And, you know, we use it to our advantage when we want it to, you know, it's like, well, yeah, but it's not a huge part, but they're like the center of the story or the opposite, you know, like somebody who's really a co-lead, but we really want them to get, an, a, a, you know, a win. We're like, yeah, they, they're supporting, <laughs> you know, I think it it's so subjective. Um, and that's why it is ultimately up to the, you know, the how, how, how things are submitted. You know, people can decide for themselves. I remember a few years ago, there was a, a tense moment where it wasn't clear if Rooney Mara was going to run in supporting or lead for Carol. And there was a big debate about it. And I heard some rumors that there was sort of an ultimatum put down and she eventually did go supporting. 
Ooh, ultimatum. The one other thing I would add is that in Best Actor this year, you know, you have Coleman Domingo, Paul Giamatti, Bradley Cooper, Killian Murphy, and Jeffrey Wright. And those are all undisputed, like, leads of those movies. Title they are of in, the movie. In they, are in the major, they are in the majority of the movie. Yeah. Titular roles. Yeah. Um, yeah, et cetera. So it, it would be, I think, quite glaring if he were among that group. Not to say he couldn't get in, but yeah. it's not a it's not a one-to-one. You couldn't slot a broadly comedic performance like that in among those five, you know? Like, also like true. Jeffrey yeah. Wright yeah. And, and Giamatti are arguably in comedies, but they're very different kinds of comedies than is Barbie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We're kind of a category fraud light year this year. I mean, there's Lily Gladstone and Gosling, who we just talked about. The only other one I think you can maybe argue for, like, as Dave and Jerry Randolph as the lead of the holdovers, because that's really kind of a three lead movie. But three lead movies, usually someone gets winds up in supporting. And I think that's a good place for her. Um, but yeah, for the category fraud uh, obsessives, this is a <laughs> this is a little bit of a year off. Maybe we need to come up with the with a less a less condemnatory word than fraud. I don't know. Category <laughs> category ambiguity or something. Category slippage. Yeah. Well, and it's it's always like it's such a fascinating question because it is political to an extent and it's also a negotiation to some extent between the movie's campaign and the actor's campaign. And they can have slightly different visions of how it should go. Um, last year with the Fablemans, you know, the the story was that that was it was very important to Michelle Williams that she be submitted as a lead actress mm-hmm. and that she was top of the call sheet. That was how she approached her part in that movie. I don't know that Universal wanted it to go that way. I think that there was some understanding that she had a very clear lane to win Best Supporting Actress. And Michelle Williams is perfectly happy with the way things turned out. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, so there, there's also those distinctions. And that is something we don't always have as much insight into. And I think sometimes the politics of that um, reflects an uglier side of the industry, you know, in terms of like, why wouldn't Michelle Williams, who's the the top of the call sheet, why would she just get kind of thrown in supporting? Is it because she's a woman? Why is Viggo Mortensen the lead of Green Book, but Mahershala Ali is supporting when they're basically mm-hmm. co-leads? You know, right. I mean, I think obviously... Um, there is some cynicism, and understandably so, I think, from studios that are like, well, it's just going to be harder for X to happen. It'll be easier in this category. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that's a bad tradition that probably should be rethought. And I, it will take some work, obviously, in a holistic way. Um, but, um, yeah, that's that's change that probably needs to happen and needed to happen a long time ago. Well, you can draw a direct line from Jennifer Connelly winning supporting for A Beautiful Mind or Viola Davis winning supporting for Fences and to Carrie mm-hmm. Mulligan being the lead in Maestro, um, even though the movie is called Maestro, right? Like that yeah. movie is kind of a corrective to exactly what you're talking about. Joe Reed from This Has Oscar Buzz has a fascinating, intricate theory about if Viola Davis ran lead in Fences and won, which she probably would have, what the ripple effects of that would be. For example, Emma Stone would be waiting to win her first Oscar. Yeah, uh, we're gonna, we need to have Joe back on and just do a full episode of those. Yeah. Oh, it's fascinating because it really does have long-lasting effects if you really get yep. game it out. The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? 
We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So let's dive deep on a couple categories that we haven't talked too much about. And I think getting into the technical categories kind of happens naturally over the course of the season. But we got this question from Sophie, who asked specifically if we could discuss some of the potential bloodline um, nominees. I think she might have even sent this before nominations were announced. Um, She said, in particular, I'd love to know your thoughts about whether Thelma Schoonmaker can win a record fourth editing Oscar or if Oppenheimer is going to sweep the majority of the technical categories. Um, I'd love to talk about editing because I don't think I... I have a good answer for who is going to win in that category. And we've talked about how interesting it is that Anatomy of a Fall got the nomination in there. I don't know if that means it's a surprise winner waiting in the wings. Um, I kind of believe in Thelma's star power, but I'm willing to hear other arguments. Do you guys have firmly held beliefs here? I could be totally wrong about film editing because, yeah, it's it's one of the more inscrutable categories if you're not directly involved in the process of filmmaking, I guess. But for me, it's sort of about a, the rhythm of a movie in some ways, and uh, that's one component of it. And I think that Schoonmaker is obviously a legend and is a strong contender. But I think a movie like Oppenheimer, which seems to have this huge groundswell behind it, like that movie is very edited, you know. Like, and I and I think that if people are sort of like the more the more dil- you know sort of unaccustomed people in in the the academy who are voting on this, they might think about Oppenheimer and its many 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 cuts and its crisscrossing between locations and people and scenes and all that. I don't know. I just feel like that's going to be really tough to beat when Flower Moon, which it does have its kinetic moments, is a for stretches of it sort of more stayed and considered and still. Mm-hmm. I think we should prepare for the possibility this year that it's going to be a lot of Oppenheimer (laughs) in the technical categories because it is, um, we haven't had a best picture winner like, and again, I'm presuming it is a front runner right now, uh, like Oppenheimer in a while, a a big budget, really craft forward film that is represented in a ton of below-the-line categories. Even Everything Everywhere All at Once won this award last year, and that was an indie. Um, And this is a category usually won by movies like Dune or Ford v. Ferrari. So I completely agree with Richard. I I, I would be really shocked if Oppenheimer did not win editing. Um, There's a lot of admiration for what Jennifer Lame does, um, just (laughs) keeping it coherent, uh, because it's truly, you know, breakneck for three full hours. Um, and does a lot of crisscrossing in different time periods. And it would be posthumous, right? Because no one can survive that. I mean, that that's <laughs> <laughs> just hit send on the final edit and drop dead. Like, <laughs> um, I, I, the, my my one thing about this is like in a year like this, where you have a lot of a lot of movies like that. You have Barbie. You have Killers of the Flower Moon. It, it can be not dismaying, but a little bit frustrating when. You have the whole academy voting on all these races who maybe don't have as much insight into the intricacies of every particular craft. 
And so a Dune wins everything or an Oppenheimer, uh, I think, wins everything. Um, at the Emmys, they do branch-specific voting and you get a little bit more surprise with the creative winners. This is not a year where I expect much splitting. Last year, we did get a lot of that, which was nice. Yeah. Uh, I was looking that Dunkirk did win Best Editing in 2017 over The Shape of Water, which won Best Picture. Inception, was it nominated for Best Editing? Which is crazy to me. Like, that's a weird miss uh, for that. Um, But yeah, Nolan movies, the editing is really visible and really powerful part of what they do. So it's kind of no surprise that they'd be so dominant here. Well, Inception didn't really have it. That's all one take. So there wasn't much to edit. (laughs) Mary Cotillard actually uh, guided the camera. Right. I was just going to say, I, I don't have a lot of great insight. You guys know this particular category way better than I do. And I I would agree, though, that Thelma absolutely has star power, but probably not for this film. She is the most nominated editor ever. She's had nine nominations. Um, and so she's tied with three other editors um, for the most wins with three Oscars. So she's doing pretty well, I would say. Yeah. And she has won even when the movie isn't as strong. Like she won for, I think she won for Raging Bull. Yeah. And for The Aviator. Yes. And The Aviator. And, and the then Aviator, also for The Departed, which won most of Well, of course. Yeah. Um, the Aviator was in this sort of that Scorsese middle period before he finally won Best Picture. So it does show she has some strength. And I personally think her work on Killers is pretty incredible, even though it is three and a half hours, um, because it does move. And she is just so in sync with his vision for how these stories are paced. Um, So I'd love for her to get a run in it. I just, I I don't think it's going to be her year. Yeah, those Killers and Oppenheimer are more similar than you would think in the way that they kind of flash you back to Mm -hmm. characters and the way that like it jumps around, you know, the keeping track of all of the like redneck good for nothings and killers is really not unlike keeping track of all the nuclear physicists in Los Alamos. It's a lot of people to keep track of and the editing is crucial for both of those movies. Mm -hmm. I think in almost every category that it is nominated in, Anatomy of a Fall is the true wild card because, <laughs> the, well, the fact that it got into Best Picture and editing signals enough people watched it, A, and B, enough people loved it. Um, and just how far that can go, who knows, but maybe it can pull off a, a grand surprise in a category like editing. Well, let's talk about a category where it's not going to be the grand surprise unless something really crazy happens, um, because Sophie also asked about visual effects, um, which I think is a fascinating one because uh, Oppenheimer's mm-hmm. not nominated. It didn't make the short <laughs> And it would list. have won so It would easily. have won. It's really, I still would love to know for someone in the visual effects industry or in this branch, like what exactly happened there, because the effects are all practical. Um, but anyway, I mean, you, I think between Godzilla Minus One, which is this fascinating success from Japan, and then kind of the more typical Marvel movie or the Creator, um, which like Godzilla minus one was made on a really famously small budget for its effects. Um, there's a lot of compelling narratives in there, and I really don't know what might win. Um, yeah, I mean, this is maybe a weird thing to stump for, but um, I kind of liked the creator a lot, and I think that one of the things that uh, Gareth Edwards, who directed the movie, does is make a heap of digital effects look really organic. And that's kind of the point because the robots in it are supposed to be sort of like older and sort of dirtier. And they're these kind of rebels living in living in the countryside. And it's very present, the effects, but it's also subtle in a way that um, I think that director is uniquely good at doing. So yeah, I, I don't know. That'll be kind of cool. That movie is not a perfect movie by any means, but it was one of the better, bigger movies of last year and was sort of underlooked. Yeah, I, I just I this is a one case where I wonder if it just hasn't been seen enough because obviously the branch nominates it 
a deserving nomination. But then when you open it up to the whole Academy, the film was not a box office success. It was not campaigned mm-hmm. outside of this space. Um, so that could be a challenge for it. It, it. it may be between the way I'm seeing it right now, Godzilla minus one, um, because there's speaking of momentum, you know, this movie had a really surprising and exciting run at the end of the year. And ob- and its visual effects are very obvious to anyone who's even aware of the movie mm-hmm. uh, and, and the narrative behind it. And Napoleon, I think, can actually <laughs> yeah. get a lot of votes here because it is a true Ridley Scott epic. Um, it shows its might. And it is a movie that was really heavily campaigned across the board. So by you know that logic, it has been pretty widely seen. So I think it will pick up a lot of votes. I wonder with Godzilla, um, something I, one of the things I love about that movie is that, that they are very loyal to the monster creation, you know, that, that yeah. he looks like old school Godzilla. Um, and I think that's a great asset to the film, but I wonder if Academy members might see that expecting some mm-hmm. sort of slick CGI thing that doesn't look like a guy in a suit. I mean, it's not a guy mm. in a suit, but like, you know what I mean? I, I think it's either an asset or a hindrance. I can't quite tell, but that would be such a fun win and a nice award to give to a movie that, you know, had that kind of breakthrough success in, in the United States, um, which a lot of, you know, foreign cinema, like Asian cinema does not. Yeah, we haven't really talked about the um, Godzilla Minus One and Boy and the Heron kind of twin breakthrough successes in December for, you know, two Japanese films. Boy and the Heron is the highest grossing Miyazaki film in the U.S. by a long shot, I think. And I think we all think it's going to win Best Animated Feature. Um, It's just such an interesting sign of where American moviegoers are at in terms of subtitles. Like Bong Joon-ho, who complained about them so publicly and so with so (laughs) good humor, was hopefully very proud of us. Yeah, there's something to be said for... Those, if those movies do win these categories, another example of, I think, the internationalization of the Academy, too, yeah. really having an impact. Because to Richard's point, Godzilla Minus One is not the kind of movie, it does not look like the kind of movie that would win uh, a visual effects Oscar in 2024. However, I think that there is, because you have a broader you know range of the cinephile cinema community voting on this, uh, more of an understanding of what makes it so special as a nominee in this category. So I think that's why it can go all the way. Yeah, I think the I still haven't seen Godzilla minus one, I will admit. Um, but I from outside observing, it just seems like the conversation is a lot more fun with the momentum, right? There's an appreciation yep. because of the cinematic history of the monster. So it just seems it seems more fun with with the momentum. One of the one of the other hindrances hindrances possibly is that the Academy can vote very chummily, and I don't know that mm-hmm. people in the Academy have worked with these visual effects artists before, you know, and I know that's maybe that's a narrow view of how they vote, but I think that can sometimes be a factor. No, no, that's a good point. Um, I think I would like to close us out with two more listener questions, both of which are kind of some of the perennial topics of how should the Oscars work, which just kind of like imagining um, alternate histories we never really get enough of. Um, so we'll start with this one from Samantha who says, has the Academy ever considered changing the number of nominees in each category aside from Best Picture to six? Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, Emmys, etc. all have six plus nominees. And when it comes time for Oscars, someone always gets snubbed. It seems like it would also benefit the studios as more movies could be represented. 
I have to assume the Academy has talked about this. They've probably talked mm. about everything in their quest to get more people to watch the Oscars. I really hope they never do this. I don't know if you guys feel oh my as strongly God, I as hope I do. They never, <laughs> never, never do thank, this. And I think you. we are closer than ever to it happening. Yeah. But I I I have like I've reported on this a little bit just in various other um stories about the Oscars that I've done. And the Academy really does not like changing changing themselves structurally, changing the awards structurally. It requires a pretty substantial groundswell. Um, so I still have faith that they will maintain a certain level of curation and personality that is specific to them. That's the whole point, that they are not the precursors. They are their own body and they have a more limited and specific set of choices. So I really hope they do not. It is possible, though. Their stubbornness may have gotten an accidental uh, bit of support in the fact that, like, adding extra nominees to the Golden Globes apparently created tons of seating nightmares at the ceremony because <laughs> uh, there were just like that many more people there because you figure it's the nominee plus their guests, you know, all that. And like, I don't it know. It was unbelievably tight. Yeah. It was like, yeah. And like, <laughs> they could not move. The Oscars are a different thing because it's a formal auditorium. It's, you know, there's a set number of seats. And so you would basically just invite fewer other people. But maybe that would also cause rumbling in the industry, you know, because already the Academy is pretty strict about like who they invite. You know, famously, Todd Haynes went to um, the the, the Carol Oscars year as Kate Blanchett's date because he was not nominated and therefore did not get a ticket himself. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they're pretty tough about it. And if they were to add a one extra person plus their entourage per category, that would cause some issues, I think. Yeah. Plus it's, you know, if you add more people, then it's not like, you know, the prestige of just five nominees, right? It's it's let's add more people and everybody can be nominated. I don't know. I think, yep. yeah, five and we, you know, we, where would our snub discourse go? <laughs> We'd find some way to do it. The thing is, I actually think there's something to that, though. I mean, between the Globes and the Critics' Choice and everyone expanding, there are so few surprises left. And the Oscars are coming at the end. I think we have another question about timing with the Oscars. Mm -hmm. The Oscars come at the end of a very, very long season. And... I think there is something to them being able to surprise you in some way, do something differently, do something that feels a little bit more final. And that can come with something as simple as shaving the nom at this point, shaving the nominations list down so you have a more limited set than the other shows. And that does make an impact in terms of how it feels a little bit more significant, maybe. Yeah. They don't want to lose their exclusivity, you know, which they've always right. done great things with over the years. No history of <laughs> excluding the wrong people. No, no but I mean, not. but in terms of like, yeah, you have to be one of the five best. Like that is a very definitive number. I, yeah. I asked a friend once, it's been 20 something years since Survivor premiered. Inflation is what it is. Why is it still just a million dollars? That means a lot less than it did in 2000. And it's like, because right. it's such a nice number. <laughs> it's such yeah. a good, easy number, you know? And I feel like five for the Oscars, obviously, they they played with that with the the best picture thing to I don't know I guess success but I, I think that any other category it just it it makes it all seem a little too amorphous or something. That's a topic for a debate next week. Is the best picture ten a success? We'll be there for three hours and we'll never come up with a definitive answer. 
<laughs> um, okay, so uh, as you said, David, we have a question to wrap it up um, from Marina about award show dates, basically reminding us that um, the in 2020, the Oscars were in early February, which, thank God, if they had been scheduled for mid-March, they would have been absolutely canceled. Um, but she says, I'm wondering if you think the Academy may try to resume moving their telecast earlier or if you think they've decided they like having a longer gap between their show and other major winter award shows. Um, I'm sending this the morning after the Golden Globes, sort of dreading the fact that the Oscars are still two months away. Not just you, Marina, for sure. I don't know that there's really an answer for this. They've stuck with this mid-March date. Is this the third year or the second? No, because the year before that would have been the pandemic year. Um, They seem to like mid-March right now, but really the Oscars have always hopped all over the calendar, and I don't know if they'll ever stop. They used to be in April, right? Go back to February. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yes, they used to be in April, and maybe they should go back to February. You guys might both be right. I like a late February. Yes. Yeah. But presumably the studios like the longer runway to campaign, right? Yeah, probably. Well, and, and there is something to be said for especially the smaller movies. Once they are nominated, you know, say by the international branch, most people have not seen those movies in the Academy. It's just a fact. And so they have to see them and it gives them more time to see them. And that is important for movies that don't have as much of a campaign budget or an ability to pack people into rooms and give them food and all that. So yeah, it's, 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 there's no easy answer, but I don't think anybody disagrees that it is too long. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and the way that things are moving is now can is looking like the new top launch place and that's in may mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know three of the best picture nominees came from can so they have been out there for you know almost a year you know close to half when you throw past lives in there yeah yeah so it's just it's a lot and can only benefits from the further internationalization of the Academy. I just feel like, you know, people are just paying more attention to it. And even though a lot of English language films end up in, you know, from from can end up in the Oscar race. I mean, it's interesting because I feel like there are some contenders of years past who were like, God damn it, if the Oscars had been in mid-January, I would have won, you know? (laughs) And then there are the other ones who said, if the Oscars were in mid-January, I would have lost. So Uh I'm sure that it's really year dependent and, and, you know, candidate dependent. Well, Parasite's an interesting example of both of what you guys are talking about, right? Because, like, Parasite's the year that the Oscars are really early in February. It had premiered in Cannes, but it was surging um, in January. And, like, it didn't need longer than those early February Oscars to have that last-minute surge to overtake 1917, which probably would have won if the Oscars had been in mid-January. So the calendar isn't really fate for in either way, right? Like, you can... You know, we don't know how these surges happen exactly, but if you premiere to can doesn't mean you can't surge late. And if you're surging late, it doesn't mean it has to be in March. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If you guys couldn't, if the Oscars will just always be in March or late February at the absolute earliest, is there anything else you guys would do to make the season not feel so long? Is there another solution besides the Oscars date? One that has happened is the SAG Awards have moved later. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helped because when you used to have everything but the BAFTAs wrapped in mid-January, late January, it was really difficult to (laughs) get yourself, you know, sitting ready for another month and a half, two months, um, when most of it feels decided. Because SAG obviously tells you an enormous amount about what's going to happen on Oscar night. Last year told us pretty much everything. So that is one way of just spreading things out a little bit more. You know, this year... 
it's, you know, I'm looking back at the beginning of January and it was such a, just such a dizzying, kind of pointlessly overwhelming (laughs) few weeks where the (laughs) Emmys just, you know, were pushed into total irrelevancy because of, you know, strike factors, but also dating factors. Um, it was, I think there was some disagreement between the Television Academy and, and Fox who showed the ceremony this year. Um, and you had all the, you had the Globes and you had, you know, in-person events that were not necessarily televised. And it's just so much. Nobody likes it. And it doesn't have to be that way. So spreading it out is the way I would advocate. Could we move, uh, not that Critics' Choice is a big thing, could we move Critics' Choice to December? Do we need well, that that's, in January? That's just like a pissing contest with the HFPA. That's yeah. why they do that, is they want to be first. <laughs> and it's incredibly stupid. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Critics' Choice and Golden Globes stacked on top of each other just feel like the most uh, silly part of the process right now. Yes. I think we should just add more mini competitions. You know, mm. acting mm. nominees have to compete in a series of physical challenges and they get points <laughs> that they can carry with them to the actual night. They re-release all the movies in the theater for one week and then there's a little mini box office competition. You know, I don't know, just like spice it up a little bit. Add some add some preliminary contests or whatever. No, I'm Jeff, joking, obviously. Jeff Probst but... is on the Academy Board of Governors now, right? To give them <laughs> yeah, ideas like right. <laughs> like Like you have a reward challenge and then you have the immunity challenge, right? So we, we need some reward challenges, I guess. <laughs> Those are very good. Honestly, uh, that sounds good for an, a revamped MTV movie award show. Yeah. <laughs> so, someone says like, oh, how did that actor get in the front row at the Oscars? And it's like, well, because they won the challenge where you have to stand oh on God. a pole for the longest. You <laughs> know? Love it. I'm wondering if which, which of this year's nominees do you think would win a survivor challenge in which they have to stand on a pole the longest? Katie, it's Annette Benning, obviously. <laughs> I was going to say that. It could, it could be Jodie Foster. It could be Jodie Foster. The nice, nice. It's, it's, yeah. It, it would be a triumphant, you know, woman of a certain age immunity challenge moment. Absolutely. I'm going to yes. I'm going to throw in a twist. I think Coleman Domingo could really hold his own oh, if, you, if you, you put him in that. So like Coleman versus Jody so versus what Annette. You're saying is the, the Netflix biopic yes, crew. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> Coleman also hard. has this. He has the social game unlocked. No one will ever vote for him to go yeah. home. You know, yeah. like. Yeah. Good point. All right. Uh, so that's our next offseason tactic is Survivor as Oscar race. Everyone, please submit your <laughs> uh, suggestions for challenges. We will take this as far as we can. <laughs> I love it. That does it for this week's show. Again, please sign up to participate in our Oscar pools. Email littlegoldmen at vf.com with the subject Oscar pool so that we can have you in line to sign up. We will email you more information from there. Um, You can email it with other stuff, too, uh, and have one of your questions read uh, during a show like the ones you heard today. You can also read us at Vanity Fair. You can find us on social media at VF Awards Insider and uh, on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylaws. And David. David Canfield 97. And Kara. Kara J. Warner. Our editor and producer is Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the other great idea for a contest that would allow the Oscars to spice themselves up goes to David Canfield. A pissing contest with the HFPA. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... 
whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 